0: Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into everything Enneagram. I admit I was not overly familiar with Enneagram before I did this episode, but now that I know what it is, it's coming up everywhere. So many of my friends have told me they've done it in the workplace. I know a lot of entrepreneurs who really leverage it for understanding how they approach their business. So whether it's something you've never heard of, or something that you're already using, you'll still have some great takeaways from today's episode. My understanding of Enneagram at the most basic level is that it categorizes people into different types. There's nine main ones, which you'll hear all about it seems to be the distinguishing factor is that it helps people understand what motivates their behavior. And that's what really pulled me toward learning about Enneagram. I think anytime we can understand ourselves or others a little better, it can lead to better relationships with ourselves and the people we love, the people we work with, the people in our community. Before we dive in, I just wanted to give you a heads up that I included a basic quiz in the show notes. So if you want to pause and take the quiz, or if you're driving or on the go, you can take it later. So today's guest, Abby Rodriguez, is an accredited Enneagram teacher and certified somatic practitioner. Her work is super focused on partnering with people and helping them get curious and make sense of their lives through exploration of Enneagram. Abby travels across the United States to teach the Enneagram She teaches workshops, coaches individuals and couples. She does corporate retreats. She is a certified narrative Enneagram teacher, a certified somatic stress release practitioner, and also holds a master's in student development theory that supports her work. So she's a wonderful person to learn from. I know you're going to have some great takeaways from this show, so let's get into it. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you because I feel like Enneagram is popping up all over the place. I know it's not new. So I just wanted to start by having you tell us what it is in general and why it feels to me like it's having its moment in the sun.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you you are correct in that it's not new. I mean, and and really the Enneagram has been around much further back than we can even date. But it came over to the Western world in the 70s. And so, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's been around in the U.S. for a while. But I think it is having its moment in the sun for several reasons. But let me kind of back up into explaining what it is. So, you know, there's lots of different ways to apply the Enneagram. But in its simplest terms, the Enneagram is a typology system, a a personality system that defines all of humanity into nine different Enneagram types based on your dominant motivation. And that's comprised of uh, your dominant desire and then also a fear that kind of coincides with that underlying desire. And so it gets to the why you do the things that you do. It doesn't just describe your personality like some of the other typology systems or assessments that you might find. And it, it, you know, it gives some description as to your behavior, but really underneath all of that, it explains why we do the things that we do. And so it's really helpful in personal development and personal growth. And also whether that is in your personal life or in your roles that you have in an executive environment and a work environment, because we're humans that show up in those environments too. And so our personality comes with us. So in a simple way, that is what the Enneagram is. And so the reason that it's kind of having its moment in the sun is that we've come into this age of people having more awareness that they need support, you know, more awareness that there is another way to live with more purpose, with more hope, with more rest and restoration as part of your rhythms And the Enneagram gets to some of those underlying blind spots and underlying moments of hurdles and self-sabotaging that keep us from those things, keep us from thriving, because we're now very aware that we've actually just been surviving for so long. I think COVID woke up a lot of that awareness for people. But even before that, uh, there was some large movements with the Enneagram in the different schools and traditions with Enneagram. And so there's lots of different reasons, but more so that awareness of we need some support and it's not so taboo to talk about needing some support in our personal growth and in that journey.
0: I think the key distinguishment that really stood out from that lovely explanation was that a big piece of Enneagram is... It's not just your basic personality test. I feel like anyone who's worked in a corporate job has probably taken a Myers-Briggs at some point. If, if, am I yeah. right?
1: <laughs> yes, definitely.
0: But I, I just want to echo back so we can all kind of digest. I feel like it Enneagram points more to why we do the things we do. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I feel like that's really critical to kind of set the stage.
1: Yeah, definitely. So when we think about each of the nine types you Know they have different names that authors have given them outside of them being numbered one through nine. So sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, my Enneagram number, and it's because each of the personality types have a number, one through nine, along with the different names that authors and teachers have given them. But really, you know, we're trying to look at not just behavior, but these underlying pieces. Because one of the one of the women that I used to work with, we had the same top five strengths and strengths finders, Clifton Strength Finders. But she led with type three and I led with type eight. And so, although that assessment was helpful in us being able to accentuate the strengths that we offered for people to be able to quickly define some of the skill set that we had, when it came to our personal growth, she and I both had different paths, different things that we needed to be mindful of, different ways in which our personality unintentionally became excessive and was really exhausting for us because we overextended, or hard for us to take care of ourselves, cause conflict and tension in relationship. You know, Some of those underlying reasons as to why we do certain things, they tell us so much about how to move forward in a way that it's more balanced. The Enneagram is not just descriptive and giving you language to explain yourself, it is that, but it also is helping you see a path to move towards balance and towards a more whole Holistic way of showing up that's really honoring of who you are and, and how you intended to show up in the world without your personality showing up so loudly. And so that piece of it is really significant.
0: So I think it's easier to have a conversation about Enneagram if people take the test, obviously, and get their number, which I was excited to do before we connected. But I think in hearing about the nine types of it, Many people might be able to guess where they might fall. So I'm wondering, before we go deeper into the conversation, is it possible that at a super high level, you can give us a quick overview of the nine Enneagram types, just kind of tick through them and maybe what motivates each of their behavior, just so our audience can kind of see themselves in the conversation?
1: Yeah, definitely. And let me just retrace just a little bit before I do that. You know, the assessment that is on my website is a really helpful starting point, but because your type is based on your underlying motivation and not just your behavior, sometimes it takes a little bit more discernment than just the assessment. So what I tell people is when they take the type indicator that's on my website to look at your top three types and to really discern between those three Because sometimes your top one that you scored highest in based on the answers you gave, that is actually not your underlying motivation. You just have a lot of behaviors of that type. And so there are some paid assessments that are really in-depth that are pretty accurate. But in general, I just wanted to kind of retrace that it's helpful to take some time to discern because you may not land on the correct type right away. We are not always aware of why we do the things that we do. And so sometimes we need space to really reflect and to consider that. So just wanted to say that piece first. Yeah, um, I
0: think that's super helpful because there are probably several and we'll make sure to link to yours free test, but it's it's helpful to know that it might take a little bit of digging and trusting of your intuition to decide where you really land. Is that fair?
1: Yes, definitely. And also too, you know, there's lots of resources And the more that you can listen to people that are sharing about that type, so whether that is an Enneagram teacher or other people that are of that same dominant type, the more you can really learn from it and, and see if that lanes with you. But that can take some time. And, and that's okay. It uh, doesn't mean that you don't know who you are if it takes you time to figure out your type. just means that you need some space to discern. And, and oftentimes, we're not sitting with an Enneagram teacher to actually help expedite that process. And so in that case, in self-study, then it really does take some time.
0: Okay. Well, actually, I, quick. this is a quick detour. I know we're going to get back to giving a little insight or sampler on, on the types, but I have noticed a lot of times people do list their Enneagram number, you know, in their bios, which, Mm -hmm. and so I just want to clarify what you, you just said. So are you saying that it might be easiest for us to learn from someone who's our own type?
1: So not that you are learning from them solely, but For example, one of the things that I have in my podcast, Enneagram Coaching with Abby, is different coaching sessions with each of the nine types. And so often I will get feedback from people that they really landed on their type by listening to a fellow type one share in a coaching space because they realized so much of their thought process was true for them. Or that the opposite reaction of, I thought I was a type two, but then I heard them and I thought, I don't feel similarly to that. Like, that doesn't sound like me. And so sometimes the narrative or the storytelling of people sharing about their type is a helpful process in discerning. The other thing too is, you know, one of the things that I offer is clarifying sessions. And so it's a 30 minute session where I just ask you lots of questions about your personality. It's almost like a job interview for your personality. And so helping to kind of discern or decipher if you're deciding between two or three types. And so that's that's kind of what I was getting at.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's really clear now. I appreciate it. All right, so back to kind of a high level. let's let's delve into the nine types a little
1: bit. So when we look at each of the nine types, all of them have one, you know, a number one through nine with the idea that it's a neutral. So type one is often referred to as the reformer. sometimes the perfectionist, but I've not really met a one that loved that term. So I tend to say reformer. For these types, what's bringing about that type structure is this desire to move through the world with integrity to move through the world on the right side of things, being a good person or or a whole person. And the fear that coincides with that is this fear of being wrong or bad or corrupt or just on the wrong side of things, those moments of realizing that you thought you were right and you actually were doing it wrong. And so that is these two pieces that kind of create that, that type one structure, So type two is often referred to as the helper or sometimes the giver. And what's creating that type two structure is this desire to be in connection with. So in the connection with others, whether that is friendships, good coworkers, or just a friendly person that you're interacting with at the grocery store. And that desire to be in connection with is also coupled with a desire to be someone that others want to connect with so that you are uh, likable and wanted, sometimes even simply the, the sense of being lovable so that people want to be in connection with you. And then the fear that coincides with that is this fear of not being worthy of connection, not being good enough to be in connection with or not being wanted in a space or wanted in a relationship. That's part of these two pieces pulling together to create that type two structure. So our type threes are often referred to as the achievers or sometimes the performers And what's creating that type three structure is this desire to be successful, but it's really in successful in the ways that they care about. So, you know, what is successful to a stay-at-home mom that's a homemaker living off the grid with chickens and homemade bread? That version of success is very different than a woman that runs her own business and is on Wall Street. The definition of success can be vastly different, but it's this this desire to create value and worth in the world. And oftentimes we know that we've created value or worth for that type three structure by getting some feedback that we are good or positive feedback in titles and accolades and awards and meeting incentives. So that's all part of that, that desire. What coincides with that desire for the threes is this fear of of not creating value, of of not creating worth in the world, of being unsuccessful in the ways that you wanted to be successful. Sometimes failure is the simple language that we give to that, a fear of failure. But oftentimes threes, they have spun failure to be a teachable moment. And so that might not quite resonate so much, You just the sense of not being successful in the roles or uh, the ways that you wanted to be successful. For our type fours, and they are often referred to as the individualist or the romantics or the artisans. There's lots of names for them. And what's creating that type four structure is this desire to find their identity, to understand who they are, what makes them different than the person next to them, what is significant to them that's separate from others. And really the fear that coincides with that is this fear of what if there's nothing specific to me? What if there's no significance to me that is different than others? And so this fear of what if I am ordinary or not enough, and this kind of sensitivity towards what might be missing. For our type fives, they are often referred to as the observer or the investigator, the researcher. And for our type fives, what is creating that type structure is this desire to know to understand, uh, to be competent in the areas and subjects and content that they want to be competent in. And the fear that coincides with that is this fear of being incompetent the sphere of not knowing what is needed, the sphere of not having the information or the knowledge that's needed in order to make their way in the world. Whether that is in large scale moments of how, to, how to parent and how to navigate that into small scale moments of wanting to be competent in order to make a decision and, and withholding their thoughts until they feel competent, till they've researched enough to come back and share their ideas. Our type sixes, they are often referred to as the loyalist or sometimes the loyal skeptic. And what's creating that type structure is this orientation towards wanting to navigate uncertainty with support. Sixes are very sensitive to the things that can go wrong, to the worst case scenario, the pitfalls, the threats. And so because the world is uncertain, because they're very aware of that, they want to be able to navigate that at least with support, whether that support is information and knowledge or that support is people, you know, a good leader or a good community that they're a part of as they're navigating life. And the fear that coincides with that is this fear of being without support in the uncertainty of not having the knowledge or awareness that's needed being caught flat footed when the other shoe drops that they don't have any community or they don't have a leader or they don't have information for guidance. And so that's kind of the the coinciding piece for the type six for our type sevens. They're often referred to as the enthusiast or the Epicurean taking delight in the finer things in life. And what's creating that type seven structure is this orientation towards wanting to be truly satisfied and um, this desire to be truly satisfied and content. And often that shows up as this pursuit of joy and enjoyment, this pursuit of opportunities and possibilities and ideas um, wanting to keep things lighthearted and glasses half full, more of a, a positivity orientation. And the fear that coincides with that for the type seven is being in spaces or situations, relationships, contexts, where they are limited. They are kept from being able to pursue satisfaction. They are trapped in a situation where they can't pursue joy or enjoyment. They feel limited or restricted. And that can be really small things like being stuck in a boring meeting that you don't control and you can't get out of to larger scale things of being in relationships that don't feel hopeful or optimistic. Uh, There's no way to rosy colored glass the situation. It just feels hopeless or it feels limiting. And uh, there's a real desire to, to get out or escape that for the type seven. For our type eights, they're often referred to as the protector or sometimes the challenger. And for type eights, the orientation, the desire is to be in control of their reality. And the fear that coincides with that is this fear of being taken advantage of. And so type eights show up with a lot of protective qualities around their time, energy, resources, space, and most significantly around their vulnerabilities, things that could be used against them and they could be taken advantage of. With the type eight structure, that fear being taken advantage of, that can also be extended to the people that they love. So their family, if they supervise, the people that they supervise, their team, their friend group, you know, it's kind of an extension of the umbrella of protection. And then last, but of course not least, type nines, they are often referred to as the mediators or the peacemakers, the peacekeepers. And the type nine structure, it's really created out of this desire for peace, for harmony, for stability. And oftentimes this orientation towards an, an inner peace. And the fear that coincides with that is this fear of disruption. The sphere of conflict and chaos. And so that orientation towards avoiding or getting out of the chaos and conflict by being easygoing and, and kind of keeping the peace. So that is a very aerial high level view of each of the nine types.
0: Thank you. First of all, I know that was a lot to ask of you and I really appreciate it because I think it's fun. Not only are we having a chance to get attuned and hear your special way of words of how you'd kind of describe those at a top level. But I guarantee we all were like, oh, that is spot on. Someone we know or love, a friend or a partner. So I, I think that people will enjoy hearing that list. I just want to ask you, so once we identify, let's say whether it's in a work setting or personal setting... What are some first steps that you work with clients that you think would be most beneficial if people want to start actually applying the wisdom of their Enneagram for personal growth?
1: Yeah. So once you have a firm sense of your type or even just a suspicion, you know, sometimes it takes some time to figure out your type. But really, the first step in that is to begin to observe yourself. Because one of the gifts that the Enneagram offers us is this incredible map towards self awareness and also a map towards personal growth. So when we hear, if we, you know, as you're landing on, let's say type eight for me, then now I have this whole list of and access to all of these insights about type eight, pet peeves, the way that you lead, what it's like to be led by you, what it's like to communicate with you, what the type of things they are doing in a communication and how the other person perceives it. All of these different attributes. And it's not that we are walking around with this list or with this map paralyzed by how we might accidentally bump into someone in a way that is unhelpful. But instead, it gives us some language to explain the things that are typically true of us in conversations to understand, well, that's probably what was happening for me. I was just trying to maintain control of my boundaries, or I totally let them walk all over my boundaries. And so no wonder my feelings are hurt, or they didn't answer any of my questions. So no wonder I I feel like I've walked away with more anxiety about the situation than before I had a conversation with them. It gives us some ability to explain the things that are true of us. And so the first step in personal growth is always starting with self-observation because you can't change anything without knowing it. If you don't see something, you can't modify or adjust it. If you don't know that it is true about you, then you can't can't do anything about it. And so it always starts with the self-observation because we're trying to increase our self-awareness And really to increase it in real time. You know, when people start to work with Enneagram, oftentimes it's hindsight. We begin to make sense of the things in our past, even if that past is just a week ago in a conversation with our partner. But the more that we can kind of shorten that window of rather than noticing it years or weeks or days or hours later, we begin to actually notice our type structure showing up in real time. So that then we can pause and move forward in a way that's more honoring of us rather than just reacting or choosing to respond. And so that's really that starting point.
0: I think it's so fascinating that you also do couples Enneagram coaching. (laughs) Because like I said, when you're ticking off that list for anyone who's been in a long term relationship, I bet we could all make a guess on on where a partner might fall. What has this taught you to work with couples with this model?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, when I do couples coaching with the Enneagram, it is very different than counseling. Sometimes that I'll get that question of, is this just a different form of counseling? And it's really not. You know, with couples, we come into that weekly space, almost doing a side-by-side look at the types as a private workshop. So rather than them bringing an issue into the space and us talking through that, like I would with individual coaching, instead it's every week they show up And we talk through, you know, here is a facet of type one next to type seven, and here are some of the ways that your types complement each other, and here are some of the ways that you probably unintentionally collide. And so it gives them some language, increasing their self-awareness to be able to explain themselves, not justify unhelpful behavior, but to explain themselves in the apology or explain themselves in that question for clarity, to explain themselves in the moment of, I didn't mean to, this is what I was happening. And I'm sorry for the impact. I'm sorry for what I said. You know, my intention was X, Y, Z. That was what I was trying to have happen. And so it gives us an incredible amount of language, but it also gives us so much more compassion for our partner. You know, for each of the nine types, there's these blind spots, these opportunities for growth, but really they're coupled in these deep desires that our most innocent self is trying to get met. And so it's almost these Achilles heels that we're all carrying around that we're trying to protect these tender spots. And so the more that we can be compassionate towards that tender spot, to have some awareness that even though that aspect, that attribute might be easy for our personality, it's really sensitive for theirs or it's really embarrassing or awkward or just challenging for them. And so understanding that they don't have the same things that they're working with, you know, it's almost like we're both playing this game of life and you have Uno cards and I have Skippo cards, like we're dealing with different things. And so instead of just assuming they're careless or reckless, or they're the worst and they chose to not do the thing Instead, having this level of compassion of they probably just missed it. They probably completely failed to notice it because their type is really sensitive to certain information and my type is sensitive to other information. And so leading with that compassionate lens of asking the question and being curious rather than making assumptions about how your partner is choosing to be negligent or choosing to show up in a way that's unhelpful. Sometimes we just don't see it because our type is so, so loud. And so we need some help and support in and seeing that.
0: It's such a powerful reminder that just every experience and every circumstance we see through the lens of what we know. Yeah. I just think it's fascinating. And it also feels like working with couples you could really be a little bit more proactive if you gave yourself a chance to understand your partner's number and, and maybe think about, okay, how can I be proactive about making sure their needs are met or that I'm making this more comfortable for them? Because I found it hilarious. I, my husband, just I, when I was prepping for this, I asked him and we'd never even talked about Enneagram. I didn't even know he knew his number. And it turns out he's a nine. Okay. And I'm not surprised, but I had to kind of laugh because when I did the the test, I felt a little bad because I'm a big meditator and a mindfulness person. And I had like a 0% in the peacemaker category. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. So I just, I just had to laugh. And I'm just curious with partners, when you work with partners, do you find they have extreme differences, the same number, neither, or, or what usually comes up?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's a combination of all of the above. So every once in a while I'll come across a couple that says they're both the same type and they very well may be, but oftentimes when I interact with those people, we end up finding out that one of them is actually not that number that they both thought they and their spouse were. So it is possible. It is not very common because just the nature of, we tend to attract opposites, right? So with every type combination there are aspects where you are wildly different things that you see in a very different way but no matter what the two combinations are, there are always things that you see in a similar way. You know, we look at the Enneagram and triads. So each of the nine numbers falling into one of three groups. And when I teach workshops or cohorts, then I will go through those four different groupings. And so I always tell people, no matter what your two numbers are, there's one of those four groups that you fall into between harmony triads, centers of intelligence, harmonic groups, you know, stances. it's all these different things. And so that is helpful in knowing, you know, these are the places that you're on the same page. And also there's going to be a lot of things where there's nuance. And so allowing that to be true, rather than assuming they're similar to you, because we always see things through a more egocentric lens, we just think people saw the same thing that we did, but Allowing it to be true of, no, they didn't. They saw something very differently. And so letting that be a strength and to play to each other's strengths and also letting that be a more humble posture to have conversations and not to make statements of, of course you saw this or how dare you because, but instead leading with curiosity of, you know, what was that experience like for you? What did you hear when I offer that to you? What did you need in this situation? Because you see those things all differently. And so leading with curiosity and compassion rather than assumptions and statements.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So something you've talked about in addition to Enneagram a lot and and that I wanted to make sure we had time for is the fact that a piece of this is kind of recognizing if we're an internal processor or an external processor. And I think this would be really helpful for my audience to understand. Can you explain this a little bit?
1: Yeah. So for each of the nine types, there is an orientation towards either being an internal processor or an external processor. With some Enneagram types, there are people oriented both ways, even though they're still an eight. Some of them, eights are internal, some of them are external, that kind of thing, as an example. So internal processing is the sense of when you are making sense of the world, when you are trying to figure it out, problem solve, synthesize information, whatever it is, that that process is much more productive when you do it alone in your own interior thoughts. For others, more of an external processor, it's the sense of needing to get that information outside of yourself in order to make sense of it. So most often that comes up in people that need to talk through it talk through it to figure out what they think, believe, feel about something. Sometimes that can come up if there's not another person, even in talking to yourself, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. If you're you know, on a commute in the car or whatever it might be, or also journaling or, or collecting your thoughts somewhere else that is outside of you. And so it's just this nuanced difference in how you are making sense of information. So people need to get it outside of themselves, whereas other people, they can't do it that way. They need to be able to collect their thoughts internally before they Share what they've resolved out in that conversation. So, I
0: think in the workplace and in relationships, I just am curious what advice you have for navigating conflict with someone when we know or suspect they process things in a different way than us.
1: So, in addition to external, internal processing, there's actually different conflict styles based on the nine types. So, there's three different conflict styles. That's one of the triadic groups. And so, Twos, nines, and sevens are all in the positive outlook group. They tend to avoid conflict if they can, either by minimizing it that it's not so big of a deal and letting it go or by circumventing it until the other person brings it up. Our uh, ones, threes, and fives are all in the competency group, which their approach to conflict is putting aside emotion and looking just at the facts so that they can get through the conflict. So it's not an aversion to conflict. Sometimes it's as simple to them as putting it on their to-do list, but it is much more looking at the tangible problem, what agendas people have, and putting emotions to, to the side because that feels too messy to deal with. And then fours, sixes, and eights are all in the emotional realness group. And for them, they have emotion that shows up quickly, not necessarily tender emotion. Sometimes that's anger. Sometimes that is fear. Sometimes that is shame, depending on which of those three numbers they are. But they need to get that vented out. They need to kind of process that and let you know that's how they feel so that you take it seriously is is the underlying reason. And then they can kind of put that to the side, the emotion, and look at the problem. And so in the workplace or in personal environments, if you are interacting with someone that has a different conflict style than you, there's often a lot of confusion, and there tends to be disagreements that are more about the way that you disagreed than the content of your disagreement. And so this begins to explain why there are some people we just don't like working with, or some people in our family that we just have so much trouble getting along with, And it's not because you see so differently. It's that you don't know how to communicate your differences. You don't know how to engage with each other's conflict styles enough to resolve or agree to disagree your differences. And so often it is our conflict style that is causing us to butt heads with others and not actually the thing that we think or we believe about the content of the disagreement.
0: That is so interesting. So can you give us, give us an example of common conflict styles that just aren't coherent and some practical advice for how to maybe navigate it, knowing that we have a different conflict style. Because I think some of us can, even if we don't know what the other person's number is or type is, we can sense people that we just have barriers to communicating with in times of tension.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's lots of different reasons that any of the nine types might have disagreement. They might get their feathers ruffled by another type, or they might unintentionally ruffle the feathers of another type. But when we think about these three conflict styles and all the nine types falling into one of the three of them, for example, if we look at uh, the competency style, so that's our type ones, threes, and fives, if they're interacting with someone that's in this emotional realness group, our fours, sixes, and eights, the emotional realness group's response is I need you to understand how I feel about this, that this is so unjust. This is so ridiculous. This is such a concern. I feel so hurt, you know, depending on what it is that they're trying to convey. They try to convey that through the emotion and that intensity of their emotion. But for the competency group, their response is. That emotion is unhelpful. Let's kind of just put that aside. Let's bottle it up and put it aside so that we can look at the practical problem of what happened, what was said, how do we move through this? How do we solve that problem in front of us? And often the competency's response is I just need to calm the other person down. The problem, though, is that for those in the emotional realness group, They won't instinctually believe that you get it until you mirror back to them their emotion. So you mirror back, yeah, that is ridiculous, or yes, this is a huge concern, or yeah, that is so hurtful. But if you, as a competency style, are just trying to calm and placate, right, because you're just trying to get the emotion to the side to talk through the situation, the emotional realness group will just keep amping up. They'll just keep getting louder with their emotion, whether that is volume or just intensity of the concern using more polarizing dramatic language to try to get you to pay attention to how big of a deal this is. And so it creates even more conflict that has really nothing to do with the original content of the conversation. Now it has to do with your conflict styles just egging each other on. And so that's just one variation of it.
0: Wow. Well, it's become very clear to me that there are a lot of, lot of levels and a lot of depth with which this can be explored. So thank you for that thoughtful explanation. I know people are going to want to find their own type and, and do some deeper exploration just because we did cover a lot of territory. I just wanted to give you a chance. I guess I wanted to actually really ask you what it is that lights you up about teaching this because there's so many different pieces. So what is most satisfying for you? What happens that makes you light up with joy when you see people make changes using Enneagram?
1: You know, so whether it is in teaching corporate workshops and organizations or private workshops with cohorts, individual coaching, couples coaching, you know, the moment when there's this sense of Uh aha, you know, whether that's a sense of relief of like, oh, it's not just me. Like there's nothing wrong with me. There's a whole host of people that are the same type and they do the same thing I do, right? That solidarity, or maybe that aha moment is laughing at themselves in a more playful way of like, oh gosh, like, yes, I do that all the time. Some people will use this phrase of like, they got Enneagrammed, which I'm not trying to punk people, but but almost a sense of like, wow, like that is me. Or also the sense of having a more compassionate language for their partner. And those aha moments of their partner realizing like, this is what I needed to ask for. And I just didn't know the words to ask for it. Or this is why that hurts so much. And I just didn't have the language to explain it. And there's nothing wrong with me that my feelings were hurt in that way. That's just part of my type. And so it's something I'm mindful of, but there's nothing wrong with me. And so I think those aha moments, they're just a gift. And they're so widely varied, whether that is individual coaching to a huge corporate group that is just at an annual retreat, but they're still there in in whatever variety and and form they take. And those are are real gifts. Those are the life force for me.
0: I love that deeper opportunity for self-compassion and also compassion for others. That's major. Okay. Yeah. Well, as we come to a close, I always end my episodes with the same question. And that is what's one question women should be asking themselves more.
1: Well, so the hard thing is I feel like the women dichotomy is always hard for me because I'm like, well, is it a nine woman or a two woman or a seven woman? Um, <laughs> fair, fair. I know. Right. But I, I think the question that women should be asking themselves is what do I need? And I think that answer is going to be really different depending on your personality, your Enneagram type, but giving yourself some honest space to ask myself, what do I need? And if you feel powerless to answer that, finding spaces that will support you answering that question rather than just letting the question go.
0: That's super empowering. Thank you. I know people are going to be wanting to learn more about Enneagram and find you. So tell us, tell us about how we can learn more and find, find you.
1: Yeah. So, um, the simplest way to find me is on my website. So it's abbyrodriguez.com and I spell Abby, A-B-B-I. I know there's a thousand ways to spell it now. And then also if you're on social media, my handle is Enneagram Space. So that's for both Instagram and for uh, Facebook. So if you scroll back, I used to do a lot more educational posts when Instagram wasn't so video focused. And at this point, there's a lot of clips from my podcast. And so that is a way to connect there. So, and then my podcast is another space to connect with me. That's Enneagram Coaching with Abby. And that's anywhere you find podcasts. But I do different teaching episodes, talking through specific content, live coaching episodes where someone just kind of cold calls, jumps into a coaching space with me, and we talk through their Enneagram type. And then also have different guests, you know, authors and teachers that are sharing different facets of Enneagram because like everything else, it's a whole big world and there's lots of different lenses and blends of it too.
0: Wonderful. Abby, it was a pleasure to connect. Thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at @whitneywoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.